Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem U's The Israel Teachers Lounge. We a little bit changed the name you may have noticed online. It is now Jerusalem U, The Israel Teachers Lounge. It makes it easier for people to find. It is. It's much easier to search Israel Teachers Lounge, uh, where we keep you up to date with what's going on in Israel and give you some insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Underberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going well, Mike, here in Gush Etzion. Yeah, behind the green line. Uh, here at English Cake, having some coffee, most of which hasn't spilled on the table, just some of it. About a third of my coffee did, but that's after I spilled the milk, too, so... <laughs> Thank you. My kids will not be surprised, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm always happy if it doesn't end up on my clothing. That, to me, is a success. I which I got it on my pants. Okay. Yeah. No, pants isn't so bad. Really, it's shirt, because pants it just blends. Yeah. There's a whole system to it. Um, so we're doing uh, uh, one mic, um, so I'll try to share it fairly. <laughs> But Dita's not here to grab it, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes it safer. But grab if you feel like uh, you need to. And we want to bring, there are some really big news stories, and we sort of want to give an update on, on the Bibi Netanyahu indictment, just a little clarification. And then we want to talk about what's going on with Iran, because we notice a lot of people want some clarity and perhaps uh, a diagnosis and perhaps even a little bit of prognosis which we'll do the best we can on that. We're better at diagnosis than prognosis, I think, but so is everybody. Um, so can you just, uh, on one foot, tell us what we're up to with Netanyahu? I'm going to put a link to our previous episode with Raul Woodliff, who Raul did such a great job of explaining uh, the corruption scandal with Netanyahu, Investigation 1000, Investigation 2000, one about bribery, one about... Uh, messing with the freedom of the press but but uh, the police have recommended re- recommended yeah the police have recommended indictments on both right uh yeah yes that would be correct basically how it works is that um the police have finished their investigation they believe they have enough material to indict which would mean going to going to trial um, but now it's not their decision. The decision is the attorney general. Um, but this, of course, brings up great politics because everybody can jump onto it. You know, the bandwagon, whether against or for. Um, and it makes good headlines. Uh, and, it, and in short, he's being basically indicted for what seems to be about a million dollars worth of gifts from private citizens. I thought dollars, but you can correct me. I, I, I thought that... Um, uh, and that seems to be, um, you know, that and those citizens um, got certain benefits from it. The main benefit, which seems to be, which I did not know this, which is pretty weird, is tax breaks. Is that Israel is basically a tax haven for for Olim, for new immigrants, where they basically don't have to report. They're not taxed on taxes from their uh, foreign countries. Let's say income for the first 10 years, and there was a debate of making it for 20 years or something like that, but for the first 10 years, which makes it very easy for very wealthy people to money launder. <laughs> um, this is, was actually kind of shocking to me. Um, like, wow, like it's, it's such a, like a fine detail, but then that, that puts Israel in a very precarious situation worldwide, uh, certainly as compared to other Western countries, which try and regulate um, these things and make it not so easy. So apparently Israel's being used by um, wealthy Jews around the world as a... Uh, as a means for uh, tax breaks and money laundering and things like that. So they think that, that those bribe, those gifts, sorry, 
directly affected Netanyahu, who's... Um, um, Intervention in making sure those laws are passed, and I guess keep staying and keep being keep held and not overturned. So again, we have to see. But I mean, the look, as a citizen of Israel, I'm being asked to believe that that has nothing to do with the enormous amount of money he's getting from just a couple of very rich people, and just trust him that that one has nothing to do with the other. That is that is not acceptable to the idea of good governance, and I think it doesn't pass basic common sense. Standards and there's two things. I think there's two things here. One thing is um, the fact that e- even if you can't show a direct link, a lot of people are thinking, "Well, here's a guy who's a prime minister of the country who has a pretty good salary and actually has a decent <laughs> a decent bank account, a nice house in Caesarea, and he's getting a million dollars worth of gifts." I mean, that, that's just not. Uh, While know. claiming that those gifts are just pr- presents between friends, you know we have we have letters from Menachem Begin returning gifts and saying I appreciate the thought, but as the prime minister, it looks bad if I take gifts from people and returning gifts because it's obvious. Now, why it's not illegal, I don't know, but this is this is a pretty understandable common sense thing that governments either legislate or it's a it's a norm. It's not a new thing. This idea that you shouldn't be taking massive gifts. Uh, it's not like it's made up. Um, I, I will say for the, I've, I've, some people have asked me, they don't understand what it means that an indictment is recommended. Unfortunately, as a non-lawyer, my whole way of thinking about it comes through law and order. You know, you have the two parts of that show. So you have the police part at the beginning. They accumulate the evidence. Then they go to the district attorney. There's two words in New York. You know, the announcer guy always says at the beginning, clung, clung. Yeah. So they take it to the clung, clung department and they go to... You know, Sam Waterston at the DA's office, and they say, here's what the police investigation has found. What do you want to do with it? We think we have enough for a case. And the DA has to say, okay, we think so too. So now the... Or not. Or not, yeah. And sometimes they'll say to the police, well, go back and get me more evidence because I can't, this will lose in court. But there's there's the investigators who investigate crimes and the prosecutors who prosecute the crimes. That's not how it goes in the show. But, um, but that's what happened. The police finished their investigation. They have a, a file on both cases that they think is sufficient. Brought it to the attorney general, who is not Sam Waterson. He's actually an old friend of Bibi Netanyahu. So people are a little... No, that's not even the most crazy thing. The crazy thing, and this is really where it makes all... It makes it, I think it's look a little bit like a banana republic. I'm sorry, I have to say it. But the chief witness is... Netanyahu's major political rival, the person who most people think is, you know, the only other person who could win the prime, prime you know, the the prime ministership, Yair Lapid of uh, Yeshatid, and like he's the chief witness. So that's a little bit. That's like that's crazy. I mean, here's a guy who, you know, left the last government, brought the last government down over his his fight with Netanyahu, basically. He's sitting in the opposition. He's the head of the opposition, and he's the guy who the who the, the indictment's going to be based on. That's a little bit fishy to me. Yeah. Once again, I, 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 for the same reason, I think when it comes to mixing politics and law and ethics, things like that, the burden of proof should not be on the public to prove that their po- you know, politicians are being honest. The politicians should be observably honest. When I taught in high school and I would give tests, I would always say to students. I'm not, I'm not running around watching to see who's cheating. You have to, it's your job to not look like you're cheating. In other words, if you're leaning under your desk and there's a notebook there and then you tell me you're not cheating, 
okay, then I feel sorry if you weren't cheating, but I'm taking away your test because you made it look like you were cheating. It doesn't matter if you did or didn't. The fact that you made it look like you were cheating means you didn't do what your responsibility was as a student taking a test. When, a, when politicians put themselves in political positions that then say, but trust me, they have not done their job properly. They should not have to say, but trust me. They should be beyond, their, their behavior should be, uh, should look clean and honest and above suspicion. Yeah, I 100%. And that's what we're really what we're talking about here now is that, is that even, if there, even if there's nothing provable, the, the seemingly murky waters that we're in is just not becoming of a, of a, of a civil servant. It's not the standard that previous Israeli prime ministers had. Some did. Well, not all previous. <laughs> but Ed Olmert's in jail. He's so. in probation now. He's yeah, on probation. Yeah, yeah. And Moshe Katsav is on probation. He's well, a president. Yeah, he was a president. But in reading for the story, I, I, I found out that um, that they were, uh, that no, that um, Eil, uh, Moshe Katsav was um, cellmates for a while with one of the Shas. Um, ministers who was also in jail. Uh, I forget. I just his name slipped me for a second. So, we unfortunately Israel is is not. Uh, this is not unknown in is, recent Israeli politics, the, of of um, indictments and trials and going to jail. Whereas also some really big ones were actually exonerated, like Avigdor Lieberman, who for years was under investigation. In his trial, he actually ca- came out and it was exonerated. Or uh, uh, cases against Ehud Barak and Ariel Sharon went on for years but petered out. So, I don't know. Look, look you, we can argue what, is, what are Jewish values, what aren't Jewish values. Good governance is so explicitly Jewish values and honesty is so such explicitly Jewish values that that this is not the Jewish character of leadership mm. by any you cannot ex- talk about this as being this is not what the Jewish state should have we deserve better and we must demand better from our leaders that's, that's the bottom line whether he's guilty or not of breaking a law whether he ends up finishing his term which he almost certainly will I think this, we deserve better and we shouldn't accept this as normal yeah, and I mean getting into your you know more into your, your field of expertise but this is what the Navim the prophets uh, screamed about during the first temple period. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's. We could argue about this or that. There's different. There's always different perspectives within Judaism. There's no such thing as the Jewish idea about because there's always different opinions. But honesty in government and righteousness in government and lack of corruption in government is not debatable. Like that's just a Jewish state should have honest leaders who are. Or to use the the quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. Justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. And its leaders must portray that image. And that's, that's what you should, we should have from the leaders of the Jewish state. Which is, literally, uh, now dragging it, being dragged into a proxy war uh, in, in the Cold War of the Middle East. Uh, I don't know if it's being dragged into a proxy war. I think we were always in the middle of more intense times and less intense times in this, in this battle on our northern borders. Well, here's what I mean. I think, I think that when you're talking about the battle on the northern border, Israel has been operating behind em- enemy lines clandestinely now. In Syria... Even openly. Even openly with uh, over 100 you know, uh, air missions in, from the Air Force in the last few years. And also a lot of missions on the ground in yeah. Syria. But that's protecting the northern border. That wasn't as directly involved. Let's talk about what happened this past week with Iran. Yeah, but that's still going on, actually, because even yesterday, Syria claimed that uh, 
that um, it forced an Israeli drone just yesterday to have to return to Israeli territory. Israel's not confirmed, like it usually doesn't confirm. What happened over the weekend, it was not, it was, Israel could not avoid uh, confirming. But basically what happened on Shabbat sometime, and I, I don't have the timeline one to present down because it, it happened after, I mean, it happened during Shabbat and we didn't find out about it until afterwards, obviously. So uh, a drone, uh, reconnaissance drone launched from Syria by Iran, because Iran has bases in Syria, which Israel is constantly fighting against. Um, came into Israeli territory, an Apache, Israeli Apache helicopter shot it down after a minute and a half of it's in Israeli territory. Then Israel went to shoot, to, to bomb the base that the drone was launched from and sent, I think, eight fighters maybe or something, sent a bunch of fighters, uh, aircraft, and on the way, and they were met with anti-aircraft uh, 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 missile batteries by, by Syria. Right, so you get the get the complication here. You're talking about Israel, Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah is under there as sub thing. Um, anyway, so the the anti aircraft uh, missiles shot at Israeli airplanes. But and now here's the difference. Here are the two differences. One, it was an Iranian drone that came into Israel. Second, is that when Israeli aircraft were back in Israel, anti Syrian anti Israel anti aircraft still shot at them into Israeli territory, and that's something that hasn't happened before in recent history. One of the missiles exploded near one of the F-16 planes, doing enough damage that, it, that the pilot and the navigator had to eject, and the plane was lost. So if we're talking about the two major differences that happened here, it was an Ar- Iranian drone came into Israeli territory, and Syrian anti-aircraft fire followed Israel into Israeli territory. That has not happened in the past few years when Israel's in its missions. Um, and that's where we're holding I mean, that is something new. And I think that the, the proper context to understand it is the Middle East is in the middle of a Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia for dominance in the Middle East. The Iranian strategy is building, because they don't have, they don't have a Sunni coalition like the Saudis have, they are putting Iranian interests in different countries so that they can have direct uh, extension of Iranian power. So they have forces in Yemen. They have taken over huge chunks of southern Iraq. They have uh, a lot of foot. They have a real strong foothold in Syria because they fought with Assad against the rebellion. They've always supported Assad. They've always be- they-, they built Hezbollah. And the Russians, who have a nice relationship with them and are also backing Assad, are sort of the granddaddy on that side of the equation. They're the, they're the power behind Iran. This right, International power. Yeah. So, so Iran is, seems to be poking at Israel to see what would happen. And I, 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 in other words, as they extend their power throughout the region, Israel is the interesting player. The Saudi side, the Sunni Arab side, which wants to keep the Middle East under Sunni Arab hegemony and not Iranian Persian Shia power, they have a secret weapon in their back pocket, which is Israel. Now, they have a diplomatic difficulty in in letting Israel be a full player because allying with Israel is still problematic in the Arab world. They've spent decades vilifying Israel and saying it's what's damaging the Middle East. And so you have this weird problem of shoot, they really want Israel, the, the military superpower of the Middle East, to help them against their enemies, their Iranian enemies. But if they ally too closely with Israel, it's uncomfortable. Iran's poking at it. This is, this is what you do in a Cold War. Cold Wars, like if you look at the, 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 the original United States-Soviet Union Cold War, it's all about brinksmanship. 
you don't want to go to hot war. You don't want to go to full war. So you have these proxy battles in Vietnam, in, 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 in Africa, in the Middle East, in the Six-Day War, in South America, where you poke and prod at each other and see how far you push without pushing over the edge to full-scale war. So this poking to see how the Iranians to see how far they can go without crossing that brink and turning into a real all-out war is exactly what you would expect to see in, in a Cold War framework. It's a mini version of the Cold War that us old folks grew up in, where, yeah, it always gets hot, it always gets these proxy battles, always gets serious, but they're always tamped down not to spin out of control. Uh, in, in, I, I, in, in this case, causing a larger regional war. A larger regional war is not what they want. They don't want a full-scale shooting war between the Sunni and Shia world. They, neither side really wants it. They want dominance without going overboard because that would be ruinous to all sides. So, so Iran, I also have this feeling of Iran. You know how like Condoleezza Rice came in and said, well, I can make peace between the Arabs and Israelis. That shouldn't be a problem in the George Bush administration. And then John, John uh, Kerry comes in and he's like, oh, I can do it. It should be doable. What's so hard? And then Trump comes in and says, well, I should do it. It shouldn't be that hard. And like every one of them suddenly look like in theory, it's not hard. But when you actually look at it, I also feel like the Iranians are wondering, like, what's the big deal? They've never directly fought Israel. Like, why is everyone? What if we we could just send a drone? Like, like, I think I think there's a certain I, I, I get where like what, well, what, I'm, what I'm saying is the reason that the Arab world is very cautious around Israel is they've been burned directly. Right. They felt the failure. Condoleezza never felt the failure of trying to get the Israelis and the Palestinians to make peace. So she walked in and said, well, I can do it. Kerry never did until he did it, and then he looked like an idiot. And, you know, it's, it, everybody thinks they can do it until they try. Iran, Iran has never been burned by Israeli forces, by Israeli military intelligence and power. Well, intelligence a little bit, but... You, you mean by a full-scale war? Or even a short... They, they've never been in... They've had Hezbollah no, knocked out... No, we also blew up some like Iranian generals on the Lebanese border, on the Syrian border, a couple of years ago. Yeah, we've done like, like you know, small bore. We've we we sabotaged their nuclear facilities, right, right. but they've never sent direct combat troops against our combat troops. Right, so never had a direct uh, battle or war. Is what you're saying? Yeah, they're testing the water to see what happens, and Israel's burning their hand to show them if you mess with Israel you will be burned I don't care how you do it your 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 ability now and because it's Syria and Iran together your ability your air power is now severely compromised by a large-scale strike on your air capabilities in Syria which Israel says it did right meaning the after the f-16 was down by Israel Israel went and wiped out about half of Syria's uh, anti-aircraft batteries um, to just prove a point and I think what you're saying before not wipe them all out because you know this idea of cold war you don't want to go too far because then you push the other side to make a more drastic move there's so balancing between you know uh, how much force to use without letting it spin out of control is what I think you're saying and, and, and again sometimes it does spin out of control well, that's exactly what I'm saying. The Iranians are being aggressive and seeing, but they're not being enormous. Sending in a drone and having the Syrians shoot down planes in their territory, even even the shooting over the border into Israel, which may or may not have been, I'll assume it's intentional, they're baby steps. All of this becomes, this conflict I don't think is going to go away. The question will be scale. How much bigger will it get? 
if it gets bigger. That's unpredictable because that decision is really in the hands of the Iranians more than Assad, is how much do they want to poke? And Israel is always going to choose a response that is punishing, but isn't so big. Now, that could, by the summer, break out into a full-scale war, or it might not. I don't know. So I want to point out, I think you're mostly right, I just want to do, I want to sort of fine-tune something, is that it's not only dependent on, you know, if if one side says, okay, it's a go, Iran or Israel or Hezbollah, right? Sometimes things escalate because they just escalate because people don't make yeah, the right decisions. Yeah, yeah. You know, people or they make decisions that they don't fully think, think through. Like the second Lebanese war, how did that break out? Because uh, Hezbollah launched an attack to kidnap a couple Chaylim who they end up killing and then taking the bodies and then and, and launching katushas along the Israel's north. Now Israel had a number of respo- potential responses to that. Ed Omar who was actually, when he found out about it, was meeting with Gilad Shalit's parents who had just been kidnapped a week or so before was, many say, over-emotional at that time. Being there, more kidnapped Israeli soldiers and ordered basically a full-scale invasion to find those soldiers of, of, the, of Lebanon. And so that one decision led to uh, um, a major conflagration, which a more subtle or a more underscored response would maybe wouldn't have had that second Lebanese war, but a, a completely different thing. So... It's like a human decisions, which aren't always thought through, can also add to these. 100%. I agree with you 100%. That's a, that's a very important fine-tuning. And it's where both of the stories we're talking about today come together. Because politically, Israelis don't love Bibi Netanyahu. Most Israelis are not happy with the corruption. But they feel they can trust his judgment in holding back Iran. So if you're looking for the political consequences of the corruption, they're going to be minimized tremendously by the feeling that Israelis have, this is the prime minister we want, because he knows how to do this type of brinksmanship and keep us safe better than anybody else who would replace him. And I would even do more, for give, in my opinion, in terms of kudos to Netanyahu, which many people, certainly on the right, don't like, um, uh, who is that he is a very moderate leader when it comes to military intervention he's a brinksman which is exactly what this situation calls for so whether people articulate it that way or not there's a sense of comfort and trust that he has our backs properly and that maybe they say i should go harder at it but there's this even on the right there's this grudging feeling of like but he probably knows so let's and we'll, let's give an example of what we're talking about. I think uh, the Suketan or whatever what was that called in English. I don't remember the 2014 Gaza um, battle war or whatever you call those things is where you know those on his right were calling for a full invasion and retake over uh, of Gaza, and it's now who was very very specific in his you know goals. We're going to wipe out those tunnels. We're going to do damage to Hamas, but we're not going to topple Hamas because you topple Hamas and you don't know what you get in return. Um, especially in the Middle East in these days. So he's very, like you say, Brinkman's very thought out, very mediated. Listen, I, I think if you're talking about examples to prove that Netanyahu's very good at this, it's how quiet things are. <laughs> he keeps quiet. So, so internally, externally, and now you can say, well, that's not because of him, that's because of external. I don't know. Israelis like the feeling of 
he, while he's on the job, while, when his hands are at the tiller, the ship steers beautifully. So that's going to, and I think, I, I think you know, if you're looking at why he's going to be prime minister for 16 years, that's the main reason why. Yeah, I mean, you can see that with the Palestinians in the West Bank, right? With through all of these uncomfortable lone wolf attacks and terror attacks that do do damage. It has not really sparked a greater conflagration. You could say he made this mistake, that mistake, but his ability to let that pressure cooker, you know, relieve itself, you know, the valve, open the valve at the right times and the right moments, not always, but but the, the majority of times has really kept things, I think you're right, as quiet in terms of Israelis feeling secure. And again, he's a brinksman. He will he will set up more checkpoints, but then he'll relieve checkpoints when things are quiet. He's 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 agile. Or, or set up more or set up more checkpoints, but not limit the amount of Palestinians who come into Israel to work. Right. That that's the balance, which is a, a key a key factor. And, and so many Israeli voters feel well. You know that's why we vote because there's no alternative to anyone who will do this remotely as well. So that's a full circle in this episode. Yeah. I know, and, and, that's, and it, it, in the end of the day, it's really when you vote, what are your priorities and how you play on that. And that's why you'll see very often Netanyahu, even though he was finance minister in the, in the past and has strong economic crudos, I think he has a, a, a master's in economics is one of those things from MIT, but he, he, he often plays to the more security nationalistic voice to get the votes because when you're prioritizing those issues in the voting, that's what pre- people often pops up in people's minds. Well, pops up. I mean, not blowing up is like a very good priority in life. No, for sure. But if you ask people today, right, when things are quiet, if you ask people, okay, what's Israel's major issue? Economics is the housing market. That's Israel's biggest, uh, you know, biggest challenge. But when you get to that voting booth, when you're going to pull that lever, you're going to pull it because... When you drop that card in this yeah. case, it's not a... That's true. Even though I've only, I only voted once in America and I've voted the rest of my life in Israel, but that image of pulling the lever slip. But are you going to vote, are you going to put that card in because you can't get a good mortgage or because, you know, Iran is getting nukes? You don't want to explode. Yeah, exactly. So that leaves us uh, with um, uh, where we are. Again, people... Uh, in the end of the day, I think people feel, you're right, safe with Netanyahu at that helm. Yeah, so the corruption in the world. Now, you could also argue that that's why he feels comfortable being so corrupt, because he knows he's going to get the votes. I, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not his, I'm not his judge. I, that's not, uh, you know, that's uh, way above my pay grade. But I, I'm, well, you know, that... I, so you said we're going to do prognosis, and I'm saying I part of this because I know you hate prognosis. You always actually reject and say there's no way one can figure it out. But you did say at the beginning we're going to do it. So well, my prognosis is really weird, which is it could get, it could scale up, or it could, it could stay low scale, which I think it, it's fair to say is pretty low scale now. Israel's Israel's conflict to the north, it could scale up by the summer, or it might not, and and it's very hard to know. My guess, if I'm putting it on tape is that it won't scale much bigger. I don't think it's... I don't think that Hezbollah... Short term. Short term. I don't think by this summer Hezbollah is going to be... The, 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 the Syrian and Lebanese on the ground don't want this to... No matter how much the Iranians might be curious to see what would happen, the Syrians and the Lebanese don't want it. And I'll, I'll add a couple more things in there. First of all, the Russians don't want it. The Russians for sure don't want it. And the Americans... Even 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 America, this administration is pressuring the Russians to tell them to cool down. Yeah. 
And that's one. And two, um, I think you have to see an Assad regime that is more stabilized. It's still not stabilized. It's winning. It's won. It's clearly won. But now it has to clear out the pockets of rebels, has to has to solidify its borders. It has to, and I think that that's certainly going to keep things. On I'm a, saying from the Iranian decision making, they're going to not want it to scale too big because they don't have their Assad propped up properly yet. Exactly. So they're going to need that. We're going to keep that low. This low level tension is going to continue. It's not going to go away. But I, there's still three conflicts going on in Syria. You still have rebels versus Assad. You still have Kurds versus Turks. And you still have the fight against ISIS is still going on, although their back's against the wall. It's still going on. That is not a stable environment from which to launch a war against the 11th most powerful army on earth by some estimates, certainly the superpower of the Middle East. Exactly. So that, that's why I think I agree with Mike in terms of short term, as long as there's no major human, you know, uh, you know decisions in there that we, well, you're not going to predict, obviously. Um, that, that Again, I agree, it was low-level burn through the summer, but I think in the next couple of years, once those factors start stabilizing out, we need to be ready for a so, so am I breaking my prognosis rule, or are we doing it so cautiously that it's still within my weird bad guesser's policy? Yeah, everybody's a bad guesser. Nobody really knows in that way. I know, I know. I'm not saying that you and I are the only bad guessers. It's human. We're not just humans are bad guessers. So I, I always, I think we... It's not that. It's that you can't take, you, you can't take into account for those things that you, that that are decisions like that would happen in the first second Lebanese war the Omar's decision to go way in or and, and you can only predict the future based on what's happening today you don't know those variables that will come into play that aren't so so based on the variables that we see our educated guess is it's not going to scale much higher than it is now although it's short term although we will continue to see things across the northern border of this sort of thing this sort of TikTok back and forth, that will become part of the background that we forget about and in the news. And rhetoric, I think. I, re- I think t- rhetoric will stay high. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's in the interest of both sides to keep the rhetoric high politically. So, Especially as uh, pressure w- gets more on the Taniyahu in other areas, the areas that we talked about before. Yeah, he's going to use this. And again, I think he has, he has reason to be able to you know, use his uh, success at keeping things quiet. All right. Well, that's our. Uh, now I have to come up with a title for this wide-ranging thing. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Wag the dog. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit where you know we're a little bit late, but we wanted to give the most up-to-date, uh, you know, insight that we could. So we're releasing it a little bit late, but hopefully not too late. Thank you so much for listening. Please, we got a few new uh, ratings, um, and we would love also reviews on iTunes if you can, and recommend it to your friends. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Jerusalem U Podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. Teacher's Lounge is produced by Matthew Lippman. You can subscribe to our podcast pretty much anywhere where you can find any podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, etc., And we'd really appreciate if you would give us feedback and ratings in those places and recommend it to your friends. Thanks. Bye-bye.